The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyon. My name is Michael Guyet, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour, special guest Doug Bonaparte, uh, who is a phenomenal follow on Twitter. And if you don't follow him, you should. Doug, for those who are not familiar with your background, just set the stage on uh, who you are, what you do. Yeah, sure. So I'm the president and founder of Bonafide Wealth. It's a uh, registered investment advisory firm based in Manhattan. I work with pretty much my peers, geriatric millennials. So, you know, late 20s into early 40s, kind of kind of made a name for myself being one of the first folks like, yo, no, no, one's, no one's helping us, you know, 20 something year olds. And I just thought it was a good opportunity to grow, grow a firm ba- based on everything that my generation was about to get into, like, you know, settling down, having kids, trying to retire someday in the very distant future or something like that. Anyways. That's a little bit about me. I like to make finance jokes on Twitter. So if you follow the account, you know, I keep it light. I try and find some laughs for all you, especially in these trying times. And uh, I guess we'll learn more as we go today. All right. So you, you focus, I think, primarily on financial planning. And I don't know if that many people really understand what financial yeah. planning is, even though it seems obvious, right? So I want, yeah, you to yeah, talk yeah. About, I want you to talk about just defining what financial planning is and why it may be more important or probably is more important than just thinking about investing as a standalone function. Yeah, exactly. And, and I'm very happy you mentioned that. So think about my firm as we lead with financial planning. And uh, what that means is we, we have a system and we have processes in place to take a look at our financial life in a comprehensive way. And by using financial planning, we, we can then get into you know how to make great decisions when it comes to our money. Okay, so talk about the dilemma, which I assume every single financial planner has here, which is that how do you plan for goals when you've got these exogenous inflation shocks, right? Because everything's ultimately based on some kind of assumption, and those assumptions get challenged when you're in extreme environments like this. So let's talk about sort of how you view the current environment and how that might be impacting financial planning for some of your clients. Yeah, so for the first time in a, in a long time here, we have to pay attention to what kind of inflation rate we're using in our financial planning. And and that's largely driven by the financial planning software we use. So when we're inflating balances by a certain market rate, given certain risk, we have that inflationary factor in there. And you know, clients looking at two percent from a historic point of view, when right now it's you know published eight to nine percent, if you believe that number, um, has us go back in to our plans and our planning software and say, hey, let's take a look at what we what we've laid out under probably a higher, you know, not probably, but uh, uh, an inflationary environment. Now, does that? I, I assume a lot of that's also expectations management, 
right? Because that's that's I mean that's all of financial planning is expectation management, right? We're we're trying to we're trying to control expectations and really get control over your finances. That is how you control your expectations around outcomes that you know there's the future is uncertain, but we have a lot of history and a lot of data that can show us how things might might behave and give us some pretty good context around our entire financial lives. And and we're you know we're here we're talking about just kind of like building net worth and you know accumulating assets so we have the resources to be able to get you know financial independence and freedom be able to do what we want to do. There's just so many other areas that make up this this planning puzzle um, from risk management and insurance planning all the way over to estate planning and tax planning. Um, you know we just talked about retirement, which obviously all of this dovetails into investment planning and cash management. So I just rattled off like the six key areas that we really just want to concern ourselves with if we're an individual or if we're helping our clients when it comes to having control and setting real realistic expectations around our personal finances. Then we can get into allocation and what to do with our money. And realistic is the key there, right? Because everyone wants to have a home in a few years, but it may take longer based on one's income and existing expenses. I want you to talk about for the audience what you think people underestimate in terms of their ability to grow their net worth. Because it, it seems to me that too many people tend to focus on their own personal revenue, but they're not really focusing on the expense side. I think it might be the other way around. I think people focus too much on you know the, the bottom line and what they're spending their money on and budgeting and not focusing enough on increasing their income. But the two go hand in hand. I mean, you know, you want to balance these two things out. I think they pretty much have a lot to say about work-life work balance and what kind of lifestyle you want to live and controlling those, those variables that aren't spoken about. Kind of come, you know, these things are the discussions that come out of the financial planning once you get the, the qualitative and, and more importantly, not even more importantly, but the uh, ever so important quantitative analysis out there. Um, I love when the conversations and the relationships with clients go beyond just with the numbers and the words in the financial planning document and start to get into you know the real minutia of, of life and what they do and how they make their money and how they grow their business. So it's, it's, it's endless and endless ways to engage and find out how you can maybe uncover uh, solutions to you know problems or issues that clients are facing. And I'm curious, Doug, is, is there a certain concentration of industries that that your clients are from? Meaning, is it tech? Or are they are these people that are in the crypto space? What's sort of the makeup of the people that come to you from the uh, financial yeah. planning side? Yeah, yeah. So heavy, heavy white collar, you know, type of professions. My my wife, being an attorney for for a very long time, has has led to a lot of attorneys as clients. But I don't think there's any one demographic or category or profession, rather profession that you know, is more than a 25% allocation, maybe, maybe like financial professionals and lawyers together, you know, make up a third, I would say, but you have marketing professionals, entrepreneurs. I already mentioned a lot of people in finance have a lot of sales, like, um, like payroll software sales and just, you know, uh, recruiters. So I I think, I think the gear is here, you know, just highly motivated and and kind of your high performers here in in whichever field they're taught we're we're talking about. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so you use the word relationships, and relationships are critical to any investment advisor, financial planning firm, because that's how you can ultimately help people not react off of volatility. So, given the way that markets have acted this year, talk to the audience a little bit about how some of your clients have been reacting to volatility and these concerns around inflation, because I think communication is ultimately a uh, 
a real thing that people need to consider when they choose whoever they can go with for financial planning or investing in general? Yeah, I think that's an awesome question. And so much of this just has to do with communication. And, and what's so great about the era that we live in today and, and you know, being very in tune to technology and all that it provides is all the ways you get to communicate to clients, whether it's through our newsletter, whether I, I have the good fortune of doing a lot of media, so I get to go on TV and be in a lot of articles. So I've, I've come up, and this is all by design, but I, I have a I'm fortunate to have all of these resources that I create myself through content, either first party, third party, to be able to distribute that pretty easily to your clients. And then, you know, that that's not even counting the quarterly meetings we have with our financial planning clients. So they're hearing from us four times a year, whether they're calling us or not. And they do call from time to time, not because they're panicking about the markets, more so because there's a life event taking place. Maybe it's a new job, having a kid. Sometimes it's not so great things, lost a job or you know, death in the family. And that's just kind of like, you know, what you should expect as a financial advisor is, is really helping clients navigate these, these key, these key points in their life. But, but use the word panicking, right? And panicking is uh, when you should be communicating the most. Now, so I'm curious if you've seen that a lot of clients are panicking around the way markets are acting here. And here's where I'm going with that. The real devastation this year has been much more on the bond side. And in behavioral finance, there's this concept called mental accounting, right? People tend to differentiate between dividends, getting that money you know, month after month versus the underlying asset, even though they should really look at it from a total return perspective. It, it seems to me that a lot of people are not really that freaked out about the bond market because they're still getting that monthly check, even though on a real return basis, it's probably negative. Talk about how you think people are looking at what's happened in the bond market. We'll get into the stock market in a bit, but I, I want to hear your thoughts on the perception around rates here and if it's causing some angst or not. Well, for my clients, um, there's not a huge allocation of bonds. We're, you know, talking on average, your you know, client age is 35 to 38. The vast majority of their money is long-term. Um, you know, at most, we have 20, maybe 30, depending on how conservative they are allocations to fixed income. I could see how this is so much more of an issue for certainly my older clients, but for practices that are built primarily around baby boomers and older, where there's a much larger uh, allocation to, to fixed income. You know, for me, it was, hey, we're using fixed income as a volatility dampener, less risky assets in a, in a market portfolio that's 80, 20 or 90, 10. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm looking at this before rates went up and say, hey, you know, if rates are going up, the prices of these bonds are coming down. And you have conversations, hopefully proactive conversations with your clients, like, hey, what's what's the jury? What's the average maturity and duration on you know the, the the fixed income instrument or instruments that we're using here? And the analogy I was using was, hey, you know, don't stand on the tracks with the train coming at you. We made an active effort to pretty much reduce or get you know duration down to close to zero as possible, um, just by taking a look at what managers were out there that we thought were suitable for that, um, and and kind of got rid of that volatility at least on the fixed income side of things. So yeah, okay, pat ourselves on the back a little bit, but you know, you hear the Fed's going to raise rates, you you kind of have an idea of what that's going to do to do to bonds. So when you say, hey, you know, how's this affecting things from an income point of view? Um, it's not really the that's not really our focus given the demographic of clients. If anything, we've put ourselves in a position to not have to be rocked by price action on fixed income and set ourselves up for an opportunity where we might want to actually rotate out of fixed income into equities as they become cheaper. But presumably, there's a point where fixed income does become a buy, right? When you just look at comparative yields. Yeah. And I understand the, the the demographic part of the client base, right? You want to have more things that work off of capital appreciation, that have more growth potential. But when you look at 
the opportunity set, at what point would you say to yourself, okay, for my clients, even though they might be heavy in equities, now is the time when I want to go more into something with corporate credit. What, what would be sort of the telltale sign for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I would like to have a little bit more, you know, certainty in what's happening in uh, in the equity markets. I'd like to see the Fed continue what seems like their war path to raise rates and see how far we can get there um, before making a call as to whether or not I should put duration back on portfolios or allocate, you know, to fixed income because there is uh, an opportunity. I'm definitely more focused on discounts in equity, is given that you know my clients uh, have that much time on their hands to invest. So. Not trying to be dodgy around fixed income. I, you know, pointed out what my my main concerns are, when, when to get back in. Um, you know, I'm I'm not gonna. I think yeah, being a financial planner, we don't we don't move fast and trade like that. So I'll, I'll I'll take a look at you know what the landscape looks like. But right now, I still think hey, we're we're in rising rate environment. We we did the thing we needed to do, and now we have to observe. And I'm going to keep my attention on the thing that looks like it's it's falling a little heavier, and that's the equity side. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the lead lag report. And now, back to our discussion. Okay, so that's a good transition to what do you see that's happening here that might be appealing from a very longer term perspective? So fine, we agree that we're, we're in a bear market. You know, we may be or may not be in a recession. There are some things that have probably already overshot beyond the headline averages because there's been a lot of mm-hmm. deterioration right underneath the surface. Talk about some of the things that, that you're looking at that look interesting and dovetail that a little bit with what your process is in terms of how do you screen, how do you try to find opportunities? Yeah, yeah. So keep in mind that I'm probably taking this from a what what most retail investors should do, have the time to do, can practically and, and it can practically execute on if they're managing their own money or if they're even, you know, using robo advisors or getting some help with the with the lift of asset management. My, my, my process for opportunity is, 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 I think in 2020, I used like a baseball and I like rounding the bases analogy here. If I was approaching my clients and we're seeing this kind of action, first thing you want to do is rebalance. I think that's a great way to, you know, at, at a minimum, right? Well, let's back up. Obviously, don't panic, don't sell. Got to say that. I think a lot of listener here, listeners here know that. But get your emotions in check, revisit planning, figure out if anything fundamentally has changed in your life that would actually dictate you know, wanting to do something, do something other than what I'm about to walk you through. First thing is just rebalance, get back to where we need to be is a, is a 20% correction in the S&P, you know, is entering a bear market in the S&P 500. Or if you were tech heavy, you know, you're, you're got gashed even, even more here, or you were growth oriented, you got gassed pretty good, might be a good time to rebalance. From there, take a look at time, timeline. So, sorry, sorry, yeah. Go back to rebalancing. So when you're saying rebalancing, it's based on some targets, right? But but is there anything that's in this environment is making you rethink the targets? Because rebalancing no, is always uh, kind of a, a key part no, of investing, right? No, I, I, I don't. I personally, in practice, don't get uh, that tactical. We, we stick to our core. You know, this is beta. This is these are risk adjusted portfolios going across just key asset classes. Perhaps for clients with uh, greater net worths or greater assets, 
we, we might be a little bit more tactical in terms of repositioning things. But I'm, I'm saying all of this in the context of uh, risk-adjusted portfolios, you know, from, from aggressive down to conservative. You're, you're 100% 80-20, 60-40, flip it around, right? Yeah, no, no that, that makes sense. Okay, so rebalancing, try not to freak out, agree on all that. I do wonder, though, if people underestimate how much concentration risk that they themselves have because most people don't think about the effect of stock market declines on their primary asset, which tends to be their home, right? Because I've always made this this point that the wealth effect that the Fed is really targeting is more the housing side as opposed to the stock market side. For clients that are heavily either invested in real estate or are primarily focused on paying off their, their mortgages, how do you get them to think about risk, right? Because it's not clear to me, again, that people understand that all these things are largely correlated. So if you want to diversify, how do you probably do that when housing is a big component of what one's net worth is? That's a really, really good point. And, you know, this is my take when it comes to, so two things, you know, your primary residence versus, you know, real estate you might own as, as investment opportunities and income opportunities. When it comes to primary residences, I, I tend to, and again, we're talking to 30-something-year-olds who like they just got in their home not too long ago. I call them memory factories. I don't really even book it as a retirement asset um, in, in financial plans, even though there might be significant equity in those homes, whether it's you know anywhere from $100,000 to, to $400,000. We will, you know, if a client says, no, that's you know something we want to definitely you know show uh, terminal value on and money coming back in, fine. But in, in general, we don't even view primary residence as, as an asset earmark. You know, it's obviously booked as an asset in their net worth calculation. But when it comes to saying, is this something we're going to use for financial independence or retirement, we're inclined to, to you know, um, not include it. So there's that. And then if we're talking about clients who have you know, investments in real estate as a, as a concentration in their overall investable net worth, we tend to have different conversations with those clients when it comes to assessing their risk and making sure that you know, if, the, if the hot air goes out or if real estate's a bubble, you know, this is really taking a look at how they leverage themselves and what their cash flow looks like to be able to support, you know, um, properties in times where it, it can get very tight. You lose renters and you're still, you know, on the hook for for those mortgages or probably not going to see this. But what if, uh, you know, you have to refinance uh, an adjustable rate in the middle of, you know, some stressful stuff or a stressful environment that that's what comes immediately to mind. I'm just like kind of doing some mental thinking, like who who in the practice might I need to have that conversation with? But uh, I don't. I don't really think there's much. So that's how that's how I do those two different things within real estate. Again, primary residence versus investment properties that you might have. Um, and by the way, those those investment properties certainly would, from an income from an income and appreciation perspective, factor into the the retirement planning that we do uh, for clients. So again, I, I name the space trading bear markets, right? And maybe trading is not the right word given. No, kind of no I, focus, I, I think it's fine. I, I think I think it's fine. Given, I you know, look, I'll finish. Kind of like I didn't mean to cut you off there, but um, you know, rounding the bases here, you can't just leave it as simple as hey, just you know, rebalance your portfolio and call that you know, trading your your port. Yeah, I mean, you probably don't trade, but how how to deal with your portfolio in in a bear market? I mean, I think step one is is simply getting back to you know whatever neutral position, whatever your default position there is. Um, but then to take it further. There's a couple other things you can do here. The one, one I think, uh, both which I think are tough to do for retail investors, and that's say, okay, you know, there's there's enough opportunity, there's enough blood out there where I'm I'm actually going to become more risk on, and whether that's sacrificing, you know, uh, exposure to fixed income 
into equities, whether that's 80-20 up to 90-10, just to use some nice round examples, or it, I'm going to you know, become more risk on with the particular equities that I have or and or that you know, with the bonds. Um, and then you know, round, rounding the base here before we head home is, you know, do, we have, do we have cash? How well did we plan out liquidity and you know, uh, our, our, um, our cash reserve? Because that's there not just for emergency. Everyone calls emergency funds. It's, it's a cash reserve. It's there for emergencies and opportunities. And we want to be poised uh, in this environment to say, hey, you know, if, if we feel comfortable in our in our lives, our, our jobs, our health, family and things like that. And, and yeah, I know in my practice, I've always been a little overweight and a little heavy on the on the cash reserve side of things, multiples beyond the, the three to six months of living expenses. So my client and, and that was deliberate. So we can be in these situations and say, hey, can we shed three months of living expenses? By the way, not not great to be in cash right now, of course. Um, can we can we shed three months of living expenses so we don't get an inflation bite on this cash that we've been holding, but more importantly, target, you know, discounted, you know, shit that's on sale that we know we want to buy and hold on to for the long term. And I think it's there. I think, I think if you can get a, a, a client, you know, to, to manage their uh, emotions and feeling control enough when things are wild in the markets, make that decision and know it's going to benefit them long term. I, I think you're probably an amazing financial advisor, and I probably think you have amazing clients that were able to, you know, take advantage of that opportunity. And I think this this you know setup is is hard to do for most people. I really do think that. I mean, just doing these things right and being consistent with them is super super tough. Um, and that's what we spend our time, you know, helping them through in hopes they they get there. At the end of the day, we hope they don't sell and make very bad mistakes, but. It's getting people and leading them to the opportunities and making those decisions for themselves. That's incredibly difficult. And I think great financial advisors have figured out over long periods of time and really good relationships how to do that with their clients. Cash buffer point's an important one, right? Because I always make this point that drawdowns don't matter unless you actually need the capital. Right? If you're really going to be an investor, you got to be longer term. And who cares about a drawdown in the here and now as long as you can pay off whatever expenses and bills you have coming, you can ride it out. Right. So, so on that point, and, and you know, for those that are not looking for a financial planner, what would you suggest that people do to sort of understand not only the importance of that, but actually figure out how much capital they should just not invest in markets? Because you know, the, the narrative for the last decade has been very simple, right? You don't make any money in a savings account. We're all forced to take money and put it into markets, and everybody for everybody that that works, right, for a period of time there, but maybe yeah. not anymore. So let's just start with like what the rule of thumb is. You know, everyone's calling for, you know, three to six months of living expenses. That's your typical cash reserve. Where I was before, you know, inflation was not transitory. You know, I I was someone who was nine to 12. You know, this was primarily because of where, you know, clients of of my age found themselves, you know, entering the work environment with uh, 2008 and 2009 and, you know, kind of ending things here at the end of the market with uh, at the end of the bull run. Well, it seems like the end of a bull run with, you know, COVID and, and after stimulus here. So to answer the question about how much cash you should have, you have to take a look at some subjective factors in your life. I always go to like degree of confidence in, in your job. Like take a look at what sector you're in. If you think we're in a recession bound, and, and I do think we are, you know, are, are you in a defensive place? You know, if, so for my clients doing, you know, BC backed, you know, B round, only got 12 months, you know, of, of uh, liquidity here. That's obviously a, a little bit more precarious of a position than being working for a megacorp, you know, free, ca- you know, with, that has endless free cash flow and endless cash on their on their balance sheet. 
So I've, 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 from a practice perspective, gone down to like anywhere from basically six to nine months living expenses in, in cash. And then I have to put this in there. There's a lot of conversations around at least getting 20 grand into I bonds, uh, which, which have become, who would have thought a 37 year old advisor would be talking about, you know, a series I bonds with their clients every day to at least, you know, put the tail end of their cash reserve in it. 9.64%. Talk about that because that's, that's been in the media quite a bit, but I don't know how many people in the audience know. Oh, what I, I would are. love. Yeah, I would love to. And and I don't think I don't, I don't remember the last time I've sent an email out to the entire practice with a blanket recommendation of what to do with money. Just not not what we do. We, we're a little bit more individualized. But here, here's probably what here's one that's coming up, which is introducing them to serious I bonds, which are Issued by the Treasury Department. These, these are savings bonds. They're 30-year savings bonds. They have two components that make up their interest rate. They have a fixed rate, and then they have a component that's variable. And that, that variable rate is tied to um, inflation, basically an inflationary index. And because inflation's been out of control, the, the yield or the coupon on these 30-year bonds uh, just stepped up to 9.64%, uh, I believe. And um, that that rate gets adjusted every six months and it just got adjusted uh, in the beginning of May. So you can purchase directly from the treasury $10,000 electronically per, per person, um, series I bonds that are yielding 9.64% and get adjusted every six months. So real note about that or a quick note about that. If you think inflation is going to be the same or higher six months from now, then you can assume that this bond is, is going to stay the same, if not go higher from, from what, what it's yielding. Uh, if you think it, you know, is going to cool off, we're we're going to come back down in six months. Um, look, it's it's obviously risk free, you know, backed by full faith and credit of the United States government. Um, here are the caveats. Probably like, wow, nine point six four percent. What's the catch? Well, you got to hold it. It's a thirty year bond. You have to hold it for one year before you're even in a position to redeem it. So you hold this bond for one year. You'll clip, you know, nine point six four for the, you know, for six months or basically till November. Another six months. You can redeem it. And if you do redeem the bond, you're going to give back three months of interest. So just to recap, 30-year savings bond earning 9.64% adjusts every six months to an inflationary uh, inflation index. And you got to give back three months of interest if you redeem it after one year, but before five. So you get an option as to whether or not you want to continue holding this thing, you know, after one year, depending on where inflation is. Again, you can't buy a lot of you know, like $10,000 a year. Uh, electronically per tax ID. So if you have a business, you can actually do it in your businesses too. So if you, you, your wife, your kids, you know, and an LLC, that's 50 grand. You can get into series I bonds um, right now with, at 9.64%. So uh, I think, I think that's a little better than 0.65% in your high yield savings account. That's why you get paid the big bucks. That kind of math is, is the key. All right. So, so I want to pivot a little bit to um, a discussion around the media. Because real, real sorry, sorry, my yeah, please, please. state state tax. So some other things I left out. State tax free. So you got to pay federal income tax on it, but no state tax on the income from those bonds. And uh, sorry, the last thing I want to say is you can get another five thousand in paper form, but I think you can only do that when you're filing your taxes. So that doesn't seem real real practical. I I and I did this. I did this for my wife and myself last week. Went to treasurydirect.gov. Read the FAQs, guys. Um, you know, not investment advice, but um, go check out iBonds for for a portion of your cash reserve to get to get some sweet yield. We'll be back after a quick break. 
Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Okay, so, so going to the media for a bit here. So I, I have to assume, Doug, and correct me if I'm wrong, that a lot of your clients are also getting their news from the CNBCs of the world and the Bloombergs of the world. And uh, a lot of that stuff in the media is often not really that helpful and maybe causes sort of a undue amount of fear and, and desire to act when really you shouldn't. Talk about how you think about the way the media frames markets and how, as a financial planner, you have to maybe push back on that. And, and how important is it that people really understand that incentives matter? The media makes money off of ratings, right? Which means maybe they have an incentive to create a, a degree of fear here. For sure. I think it's not just limited to you know financial media and mainstream media. I, I think it's, it's all forms of media in terms of the information or disinformation that you're receiving, you know, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, social media, you know, tuning into your favorite, you know, news channel. It's it's when when you put it all together, it's just quite frankly one of the noisiest environments that have ever existed uh, in in the history of of humankind. You know, 13 years ago when we were dealing with 2008, you know, and and you were there for it, I was there for it. That there, you know, the social media piece wasn't nearly as loud as it is right now. So um, you have to be very careful. And as, as someone who's in the business of controlling and uh, helping people control and set reasonable expectations around their financial lives and their financial decisions, if you're watching any form of media all day long, you know, not enough sources, the wrong source, you know, um, you know, getting your biases wrapped up into it, getting them confirmed instead of challenged, it can be, it can be quite prickly out there. And this is, I think, if anything, you know, creating a larger value proposition for good, you know, ad, uh, good financial professionals who who can, you know, successfully navigate that noise or help their clients keep their focus. Uh, the good news is, like, again, it's all premeditated from, from what I started the business as to why I wanted to work with my demographic is simply because I knew we would probably be crazy busy you know, with our careers and chasing kids around where I have this really nice luxury where they don't check their accounts every day. Um, they're really disciplined at making sure they come to their client meetings and having conversations that actually do give them uh, a sense of control and hopefully an objective take as to what's going on around them. But I'm not, you know, dude, I mean, the, the news is is the worst it's it's ever been, no matter, you know, where you're getting that. So uh, you, you got to have your wits about you here in terms of what you're disseminating and putting into action. Yeah, no, I, I think it's exactly right. Okay, now I'm curious, Doug, because you've tweeted quite a bit about the crypto space. Yeah. Let's talk about that for a bit and, and maybe spend the next 10 minutes here on this topic. So first of all, do you find that uh, people want to figure out a way of including cryptocurrencies in their financial planning as allocation mix? Yeah, this is something that has you know dramatically picked up. I look. I personally have been navigating the crypto space since 2014, so and and have been an advisor for a lot longer than that. So you know these two things have certainly overlapped completely. And I I've been on the record a few times saying, and this is more this is clearly anecdotal, but maybe about four or five years ago, one in every ten prospects or clients would would talk to me about you know um, wanting to know more about it 
uh, crypto, allocating to it, or just coming in the door having allocated to it. Um, that that to me feel, feels like at least fifty percent, at least at this point, um, of clients, prospects, uh, a friend, and otherwise. Obviously, huge uptick in having exposure to it, massive uptick in wanting to learn more uh, about it. So, um, you know, in in my in my view, uh, you know, there's there's this you know three assets now we deal with on uh, week in and week out, and it's crypto real assets, real estate, and investable assets, the markets. I, I, can you think of a time in your career when all of a sudden a new asset class just materialized? It's like, all right, you need, you know, here's this whole new thing and, and you're going to have to deal with it. So we, yeah, we, we have a, a ton of planning that we do around it. Some of it's frustrating because we don't quite have like the, the green light to go make solicitations of, uh, you know, purchasing or selling crypto. Um, we, we do a really good job of, of you know, falling under the guise of education and how this would play out. We can incorporate it in planning, which is excellent. But from, from an investment management point of view, where we're the we're the fiduciary and we're managing clients' money, we can't be like, all right, let's, you know, go go put X into, you know, Bitcoin. I want to know what would fix all that. Spot Bitcoin ETF. Just like, come the fuck on already. This what's what's the hold what's the hold up here? There's there's the debut that that fund is gonna have. You saw obviously the inflows on the the futures, and that wasn't that wasn't even what anyone wanted. So again, frustrated that I don't have like the the tools and the equipment I need practically to to help clients allocate. But on the other hand, um, it's really awesome to see crypto becoming pretty much a a mainstay topic. You know, on its way to becoming a mainstay topic with my clients. Okay, so now talk about volatility and this crash that we saw the last two weeks or so. Uh, how are people responding to that? Is it causing some concern? Uh, just talk about the dynamic of it. Yeah, it's interesting. I think I think maybe there was more questions around. Hey, is this you know you know or more conversations around people's feelings around, you know with with regards to their crypto exposure than their you know than their equities. Given that their equity exposure dwarfs their crypto exposure, and is, is likely, you know, the more important asset class to be to be looking at right now, or, or is equal to uh, important of an asset class, depending on what you're invested in. You know, if you if you got in, you know, if we're talking clients and their first experiences with Bitcoin between fifty and sixty five thousand dollars, you know, the highs. Welcome to you know your first really really significant drawdown here. This is my you know eighteenth. I don't. You know, if if someone knows how many fifty percent drawdowns there have been since twenty fourteen, that that's how many I've experienced. I know there's three eighty plus percent drawdowns, maybe more in that in that time period. So if you're asking me, you know, Doug, the the crypto investor personally, I'd be like, eh, all right, like, wow, I'm actually I'm actually kind of elated to see a lot of the things that are shaking up in in crypto right now. Like I've I've watched so much nonsense come into this, and that's to be expected. You know, here. We, we've made it very easy for scams to be run and you know shit coins to be formulated and just appear. Everyone's got a supercomputer in their hands. You couldn't just you know make back in two thousand like two thousand you know ninety nine two thousand the tech bubble. I guess you can make a you know pretend internet company uh, out of nowhere, but it seems like today and then run some scheme. But uh, that's a lot more difficult than than what we're seeing here today. Anyways, you know Bitcoin holding at thirty thousand dollars. You know, after a sixty billion dollar catastrophe in uh, the Lunaterra debacle over these last two two weeks, I, I think that's pretty pretty bullish. Um, let alone the the 
capital that's been allocated to it from from institutions. It, we still continue to see you know Bitcoin you know be in the lead uh, out of really anything else that's out there, and uh, I'm, I'm I'm happy to see that. Do you think that some of these shitcoins make people sort of take on more of a gambling aspect to their money? I assume the answer is yes, but I say that because I'm going to imagine, maybe I'm wrong, that some of your clients, when these cryptocurrencies go vertical, say, well, you know, maybe you should put some uh, Dogecoin in there, or maybe you should put something else that's uh, Shiba Inu, whatever it would be. Yeah, <laughs> I've, I've made a really good habit out of not insulting or making anyone who's invested in Dogecoin or Shiba Inu, and you're, you know, you're now you know heralded you know to the moon coins the ones that had more i guess more of a discussion because they they went parabolic and, and created billionaires here I, I i want you know whatever i don't care what you're invested in i want you to win like i really do like i'll never take the side of like that was stupid um i hope you lose all your money like that, that, no i i really do hope you win now would i would i ever be like yo i'm gonna look at you know, Dogecoin, first of all, you know my stance on telling a client anything having to do with even Bitcoin, let alone Dogecoin or Shina Ibu. But, you know, it's not it's not for me. I, I, I don't, you know, I'm not going to allocate to it. I hope it works out for those who did. I'm, I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't see why that that's going to survive um, outside of it really having a robust community. Like I, I could see how a really kind of like uh, you know, their fervent communities and they really love, they, they, you know, that's it. They, they got vi- like vibes, right? <laughs> like the vibes of that community, there's enough in circulation, it can continue to live. But like, you know, Dogecoin at a dollar, it's not it's not really where my head's at. I don't think that's something uh, out there. Yeah, no, that's, that's that's fair. Okay, so again, we're, we're trying to keep this focus primarily on sort of the financial planning side and, and matching or getting to objectives. I'm curious, Doug, you've done this long enough now what are some of the, the most important traits to being successful at achieving a financial goal, right? Beyond just hiring you, right? There's got to be a personality aspect to to this as well. So talk about that, that a little bit for the audience here. Yeah, yeah. I think I think overall, I'm looking to have people become so ridiculously consistent um, and and methodical with how they approach their financial life that you know they they, they can get to those goals. I think it, it's consistency and discipline that wins. You know, just getting yourself in a position to continue to accumulate assets when things are good, uh, just as just as good as when things are bad, um, it is critical to just simply playing the game of compounding, you know, returns. And most people are not good at this. And if you can get good at this, again, it's it's not it's not sexy stuff. It's it's literally control, discipline, stick with it, sticking with it, following your plans, like we're, we're animals. We're, we're, we, we, we emote, we have emotions and, you know, inherently we're not, you know, built, built for the drama. Um, so if you get really good at that, you know, um, you, you, you really increase the probability that, that you will win the game, that you will win the investment game and you will, you know, be able to keep your head down, uh, and work hard and, and produce that you can get through the times where, you know, things really suck, like losing your job or, you know, there's an emergency expense that drains liquidity, but you're still in the game, right? So like good planning, the good discipline, it keeps you in the game. It keeps you compounding. It keeps you focused on all the things that you need to do consistently to get to the goal. And that's, that's it. You know, it's, it's conditioning. Um, and we're just kind of set up to really suck at this as, as, you know, via our DNA and also via the fact that we're not offered 
you know, much in the form of financial education and literacy uh, throughout uh, forms of our throughout almost every point in our lives. We're we're actually quite lucky if a school program or a parent or grandparent or uncle or someone who loves you or cares about you took the time to be like, hey, if you get good at this thing over here, that's not really difficult to learn. It's just it's just practice and making the effort. If you if you can do that, um, you're you're going to have a good life. Like that that's what it's really, really about. And uh, it's easy for me to say these things. It's very hard for people and even myself sometimes to be, you know, ridiculously consistent about, you know, their financial behaviors. So on that point, Doug, so financial literacy, I agree with you on that, but most people, unfortunately, their financial literacy is looking at a chart. And as long as it's going up to the right, they think they're smart. Talk about how you recommend people should self-educate, right? Because a lot of this business of risk management has a lot to do with actually spending the time and understanding what risk is. I think understanding what risk is, is understanding what you want for yourself and asking deep personal questions that require, you know, self-awareness and, and honesty about yourself. You know, when, when you don't know what direction you're heading in or what it is that you want for yourself, what kind of lifestyle you need to live or want to support or enjoy, when you don't know these things or, or ask yourself these things and come up with reasonable answers or practical answers to them, how are you then able to allocate or, or take on investment risk? You, you really don't have a north star, and it begins with those. It begins with those pieces. This is this is why leading with financial planning. This is why being a financial planning first professional and looking at investment management as a very crucial and critical piece to it. It's just one area of the six areas we we talked about that make up financial planning. But it's why we lead with this is so we can be successful you know, at the implementation of, of where to allocate. Um, it sounds, you know, some people are like, oh, that's a lot of fluff. It's not. It's not. I think people who say that just likely didn't take a second to sit down and ask themselves what they want for themselves. What do you want? I want to make sick bank, bro. Like, get out of here. It's not a not a goal. All right. And again, everybody that's here should make sure you follow Doug. His tweets are phenomenal. Now, let's focus a little bit on the tweets here because... <laughs> You've got some hilarious stuff out there, and we talked about process a little bit. What the hell is your process, man, with, with getting these these phenomenal tweets out? Because I laugh every time I read one. And personally, I think it's maybe as a separate discussion, interesting to think about how do you monetize off, off of that? Because at the end of the day, everybody wants to make money. You want to try to get your followers to be leads, presumably, <laughs> as well, right? So talk about sort of that that interesting aspect of, you know, that's, that's how you go viral, right? But at the same time, you want to be taken seriously. Yeah, this is my... Biggest concern before heading down the road of, you know, ship poster extraordinaire and, and really how to, you know, play the financial meme game and, and financial humor, you know, thing correctly, because, you know, you, 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 can, you can go down some wrong paths there. Uh, you can get some really hard learning lessons. You can be straight up canceled for just, you know, taking humor the wrong way here. My, my goal overall is to provide, you know, a couple of things. One, you know, some comedic relief and a way for people to take a step back. Look, finance in general, and you know, this is financial Twitter. So finance in general is pretty boring stuff. You know, let's let's be just real about that. We we find it awesome. I I love it, but you know, for most people, it's not. And you know, there's there's not a lot of you know, it can be it can get very stressful. We're in one of those moments and stressful times. I find my humor hits and harder, and and you know, my my engagement's even greater on on the downstroke rather rather than the upstroke. Um, there's also more news and headlines and, and things to play off of when you're when you're thinking about comedic writing and, and, and timing and stuff like that. 
So it's uh, also follow the rule of like not not making fun of. I try not to make fun of individuals and people. I make fun of myself. I try and be that you know the the investor that got hurt. You know, and that that way people laugh at you and they don't feel like you're laughing at them. Uh, is usually a really, really great way to navigate uh, all of that. And, wh- and what I do is I, I find the the theme or the narrative or, or the headline that's happening, you know, in the financial world, and I try and either flip it upside down or, or do a misdirect where, like, hey, that's you know, hey, let's let's look at what this is. What if it was the exact opposite? You know, there's usually comedic gold in that. Sometimes they're just shit posts, and you know, they could be about uh, some something that happened in my life or. You know, my, my wife has done a great job of, of making fun of me and, and me retaliating against of her and getting some kind of comedic duo shtick there. Um, it's just a lot of fun. I just figured it out. Obviously, knowing uh, there's formats, there's there's you know n- being up to speed on you know memes that are are relevant today versus old ones. Uh, it does take a little bit of effort to keep keep on top of that. Nothing you know perusing. I, I, look, I'm I'm an internet junkie, so like I'm always. You know, scrolling through Reddit and, and various parts of Instagram and seeing what you know the cool kids are are posting. So I I, I have pretty pretty good uh, understanding of the formats that hit, uh, and you know can see where the narratives go and what's on people's mind very easily. It's just something I'm good at, and I love humor and I love wit. So I, I've just been able to take all of those things together and and put it out there. Also, I saw a trend growing you know, on, on financial Twitter, if you will, there's a lot, no shortage of parody accounts and friends who do similar jokes and stuff like that, do it under anonymous uh, accounts and they can go in directions I, I would never go in because look to, you know, h- how you led the question, I have to balance being a professional um, and being funny. And that's, <laughs> that's no, that's no easy thing to do here. Um, someone, a colleague of mine uh, who I respect said, uh, you're like the the Will Smith of, of, of the place here. It's like, you don't curse. I try, it's weird in real life, you know, a lot of cursing, but on, on Twitter, I actually keep it, keep it pretty clean. And then the second part was, well, what do I do to like monetize all of this? I, I never, I never really went into it thinking that I, I needed a coping mechanism in March of 2020. And I just started, you know, providing the comedic relief. And now there's this, this big audience that that you know expects you know at least something funny out of me on a daily basis which isn't easy but um it does result in leads it you know to your point it it you know i'll get to the end of a prospect meeting and they'll say like hey i love your twitter feed and like unbeknownst to me that's how they either got to me or they were following the entire time it's been responsible for for quite a you know for a decent group of clients over the last two years that was never that was never the purpose um, but it's a good indication that if you're getting new business as a professional, um, based on your shit posts and jokes on Twitter, um, you're probably doing something right. Now, having said all that, um, you go look at the bona fides, you go look at my credentials. Yeah, I'll, I'll flex a little bit here, but you know, you go look at them. You're like, okay, <laughs> I don't, I don't know what more I'd need to prove on on that side of things. Whether it's you know doing this for 18 years being very well-educated specifically in this space and business, having the academic background uh, as well as an experiential background and recognition across the industry. I, I do serve as the Certified Financial Planning Board uh, Ambassador for New York. Um, I get to go on TV, do all the media stuff. So I, I did that first. Keep in mind that, that that was out there first. This guy was a legit professional with credentials before he decided you know, to make a mockery of himself on Twitter. That That's fair. Now, and you have a fairly big Instagram following as well. Again, I, I encourage people to take a look at that. I'm curious if all this drama with Musk and Twitter concerns you. And I say that because 
when you have so much of your brand equity on one social media platform, and then somebody or some entity takes it over, there's a risk, right? That that yeah. might impact you negatively, right? And and that's part of the reason why I myself am trying to build out the YouTube channel. But but yeah, talk about some of your thoughts on what's going on with Twitter as a company, and if it makes you maybe a little bit nervous that you've got you know too many eggs in one basket from a social media perspective. Yeah, yeah, I've had obviously many of those thoughts. Um, over the last, I guess, what, four weeks now with the, seems like forever now with uh, Elon and Twitter. Um, there'll be a movie about this, right? Okay. Yeah, we'll see how they're good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, wild, wild stuff. Um, I've had that thought. You know, I've had that thought like, oh my God, like what if, what if this place gets nuked or, you know, it's intolerable or everyone leaves anything, you know, that, that just makes it, you know, uh, um, a platform that I don't want to be a part of anymore. Um, I'm working on the same thing you're working on, which is diversification of content so that, you know, it is diversified, that that risk is is reduced and mitigated. Elon is uh, a wild card for, for all of this. You know, actually, my, my, I'm a fan of him, but my heart goes out to, you know, Twitter employees. And I have friends who work at Twitter and you know, they they just want have clients there. They want stability, and you know, they execute on their financial goals. And nobody, you know, everyone's nervous. So I I get it. You know that that would probably be the case if any person was about to acquire or trying to buy your company. You want to know what your future is going to look like. But Elon makes such a spectacle of it, um, and it's so in your face that I'm sure it makes people that much more nervous. So I don't know. I was talking to a friend too, who who's a you know, an influencer in the financial space makes amazing content and a uh, real funny guy. And he's like, I don't know about you, but like, I'm tapped out of, of talking about this. I actually got, you know, I got, I got, into, I, I guess, yeah, I got to be in Vanity Fair for talk, you know, for some quotes on Elon Musk and the Twitter deal. So that, that was kind of cool. Haven't, haven't hit a Vanity Fair of the wife. Like, love that one. But yeah, it's, it's like, are we not, are we numb to this yet? I don't think it's going to continue, isn't it? Yeah, no, and on the content side, I'm I'm curious what your thoughts are on how people should figure out what content to focus on, because there are a lot of these fintwit influencer gurus who really don't know much, right? But they get a lot of attention, and yeah, people would argue the wrong thing. So, you know, give some advice to the audience on what they should be looking at in terms of who to follow, what type of content to track that's actually useful. Yeah, that's great. You, probably the more useful stuff is the stuff that's not funny, <laughs> you know. Um, there, there are there are a lot of people, and so for all the grief that we can give media and social media, um, there are clearly a lot of gems and, and diamonds out there. I was just reading my friend Sam Rose's uh, newsletter uh, this morning, and it's it's fantastic. And you know, I, I always view it as more of a bullish, upbeat, but looking for you know more of the positive stuff. Not you know not. That there's bias in it. It's just that these are objectively, you know, positive things. You know, these are the green shoots that that exist or, or still exist. There are amazing newsletters. I mean, there's financial, amazing financial writers and Morgan Housel, who's who's a great writer, as we all know. And reading his blog posts, my, all my friends at the Ritholtz crew do a good job. Uh, Michael does a great job, and Ben they do a great job on their podcast. Always worth a listen. Nick over there. And uh, of dollars and data, I love how he uses financial data to show you the the truth of of what's really going on. Really want to remove your feelings? Go go read some of his material here. 
uh, of course, Michael, you are lovely host brings great content to the scene. And and I think more the cringe is coming from, you know, the TikTok financial <laughs> influencers more than maybe even even Twitter. Not not that Twitter is, you know, devoid. Uh, of- are, you, are you on TikTok? I'm just curious. Uh, as a lurker, like having a account. Yeah, yeah. You know, I've made a video here and there just to mess around. I, I'm, that's the thing. Like, when, when we think about content diversification, I'm glad you said that because it's it's time. Like when when you're running a when you're running a successful business and you're doing a, like I won't farm out social media. Why? It's it's me and my brand. Video content though, it it is time consuming. It is time consuming. And I I was once I remember doing like a two minute like doing uh I did this <laughs> I did this thing called this week on Wall Street, and <laughs> I would do man on the street on Wall Street you know, once a week. I only got like three three episodes in because it took five hours to, to put two minutes of video together. I, I don't have five hours on a Thursday um, to create two minutes of video. And, and you know, that's a good problem and a bad problem because it, it's, it's good because uh, I'm busy growing a practice and, and there's new clients and prospects coming in the door. And it's bad because I still want to grow. I still want to do these things. I actually love doing that. And I just don't have the resources, so I'm I'm aggressively working on changing that, making you know, uh, like to your point, um, diversification of content more more of a uh, you know more of a priority. Yeah, but to your point, it takes a takes a lot of. I don't think people really understand how much time it takes to put a YouTube video t- together, right? I mean, it's, it's yeah, unbelievable yeah, yeah. how much time. Yeah, you know. yeah, yeah, and then, and you know, look, you outsource it, right? Yeah, you, know, you get big enough and or make enough money, hopefully doing your job or whatever the main job is, and you know, you, you can afford to scale it a little bit better by, you know, having editors and producers and, you know, people that give you hopefully a turnkey production, you know, part, Hey, I'm just going to film it. Could you package this and what I need? So I simply need to upload it. We we've, we've had a good experience on, on podcasting with, with, uh, professionals like that. So, uh, it does, it does exist, but if you're starting out, you know, paying, you know, X dollars per, per video might not be in, might not, might not be in the cards. Doug, I appreciate you spending Sunday afternoon here with me on this. Uh, hopefully, your kids are okay with. Uh, yeah, spending, yeah, uh, they, they they got scooped up. I'm, they, they're now not here anymore, so it's worked out real well. No, no, all good. And everybody, please enjoy the rest of your day. I'm gonna have a bunch of spaces uh, this week as well, including uh, David Rosenberg and several others. So stay tuned for that. And thank everybody. We'll uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, Doug. Thanks, everyone. Yep, you got it. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at LeadLag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the LeadLag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.